And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this really interesting winter night here in the Land of Enchantments. Good morning, one and all. <clears throat> well, we're going to be doing something really interesting in the next couple of days, so I will quickly get those news items out of the way, and then we'll segue into what is going to be a really, really intriguing program, because we're going to be taking a huge step back in time. In fact, we're going to be taking many steps back in time. And then we're going to look kind of forward to a dim, but kind of on the horizon, shimmering, solidifying uh, trend curve pointing at a not-too-pleasant future. And we'll get into that as we go through the morning with, with Mark. So let me let me do a couple of housekeeping things here. What you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. The other side of midnight.com. Click on that. That will take you to our URL, our homepage. And at the very top you'll see the banner for tonight, February twenty second, Dr. Mark Carlotto. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And under the banner at the top there, you'll see Fast Links, Richard, Mark, click on Mine. If you go to number three in my sections, you'll see a perspective shot, uh, colorized, from one of the Viking images. I think this was 35A72. And the uh, individual who did the perspective 3D imaging, the shape from shading algorithm, was none other than my guest tonight, Dr. Mark Carlotto. And, you know, we're not going to spend an awful lot of time, but what's interesting is that I said somewhere in Monuments, the Monument to Mars, a city on the edge of forever, which is my endlessly cycling, you know, novelization, non-novelization. It's actually a chronicle of all the years of this investigation and all the various things and people that have come to it up until just a few years ago. There is one section of monuments where I kind of lament the idea that if we had behind the scenes, you know, for NORAD, automated systems for, you know, World War Three, the unthinkable missiles with cameras lobbed over the North Pole looking for targets, that kind of thing, if we had that back in the 50s, I said in one of the early iterations of uh, monuments, I said, why didn't we have something like this to, in terms of AI, artificial intelligence, a machine intelligence, be able to simply sort out the geometry and instantly tell us what what was in fact the, you know, the reality down there. So we now flash forward the film, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2019s, 20s, and there's this story coming out of uh, Spain, um, which is item number five on the page tonight, under my items. Apparently this psychologist programmed a computer to recognize geometry and gave him some images of Ceres, you know, which is one of the two big asteroids circling the, the solar system between Mars and Jupiter. Anyway, um, 
lo and behold, the computer, which is programmed to spot artificial stuff, architecture, geometry, went ding, 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 ding. We've got geometry down there. And so this this interesting story uh, I, I posted because <clears throat> the researchers and all the peer review groups are pointing to this now as a false positive. In other words, that even though there's nothing intelligent on Ceres, the computer mistook this geometry for something intelligent and therefore rang the alarm and said there's something intelligent down there. I mean, they've got it totally backwards. Really, backwards. So, we're going to be talking this morning about how does one recognize an ancient, previous, incredibly sophisticated, high-tech epic civilization amid the ruins of what appears to be much more primitive civilizations. Because there are places in the world where the most advanced stuff, unlike what everyone is taught in Geology 101, <clears throat> that the youngest stuff is on top, in this case, the most advanced stuff is on the bottom. And that's impossible. Or is it? Anyway, my guest this morning is someone who I could go on and on and on. But since we don't have a whole, you know, evening to go on and on, we'll do that kind of live on the air. Um, Mark Carlotto is an engineer, a scientist, an author with almost 40 years of experience in satellite imaging, remote sensing, image processing, and pattern recognition. Mark received a PhD in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon in 1981 and has written over 100 technical papers and seven books. Outside of his occupation as an engineer in the aerospace industry, his journey as an independent scientist has taken him to Mars and back again by way of planetary mysteries, UFOs, local history, and most recently, ancient origins and archaeology. And you can go to the other side of midnight.com and go down to Mark's section, his bio, and click on it. And Mark has had a really remarkable you know, career. And I guess, Mark, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that if you and I had not had our paths cross on the plains of Sidonia many decades ago, we probably would not be having this conversation tonight either from my end or from your end in terms of prior ancient high-tech civilizations on Earth. Would that be fair? That's probably a true statement, but I think our paths were meant to cross. You know, I don't think we had any choice. <laughs> oh. Okay, so for people that don't get the inside joke, tell everyone how did Dr. Mark J. Carlotto and Richard Z. Hoagland wind up crossing paths and what came of it as a result? Well, yeah, so I didn't know about the earliest uh, chapters in the Independent Mars investigation. I found out about it probably 85 and I saw an article in the Boston Globe about the face on Mars, and it's like, hmm, this is interesting. What is this? You know, 
I didn't remember anything like that ever happening during the Viking mission. And uh, so I made some calls, and the calls led to the West Coast to, uh, I think it was Tom Routenberg. Tom Routenberg. Right. And Tom. And UC Berkeley. Yeah. Tom sent me some tapes. I did some analysis. I think I probably got um, a note from you. Uh, I think it was before email. <laughs> <laughs> yes. God, this is, can you imagine the world before email? I think it was a better place, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, I I came out there. I was uh, had a business trip, and I stopped by the Bay Area. I was out there for a few days, and I met... I met the whole crew. I, you know, met you and Jason and Kanthea. I think Brian O'Leary was there. Um, hmm. The late Dr. O'Leary. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, it was a remarkable time. We, uh, you know, just the, the ideas, the energy was just, it was like at, at 110%. And, um, you know, I came back and realized that it was, this was something that um, more than just looking at some images, it was very, you know, it was something much more important than I'd ever, um, I, you know, I ever thought. And, uh, you know, and one thing led to another, and we won't get too far ahead of it because it's a long story, but uh, it's very memorable. I remember, uh, remember that that uh those those couple of days uh in california the bay area very well it's amazing how time flies isn't it i know i mean if you told either one of us that we'd be discussing this on the cusp of potential final revelations 30 plus years later i mean it just makes no sense yeah i mean i i I, yeah I would have thought 2020, I'd probably be living in low Earth orbit or something at that point, right? But you know, we're not we're not going to be going. Uh, well, we'll be going there soon, uh, but a lot later than than I had thought, right? Um, so, um, but of course, the the uh, there's been a lot of twists and turns in the meantime that were unexpected. Um, I think it was unexpected the way a lot of these discoveries were um, were received, and um, you know, and how the scientific community still, you know, based on your last, uh, you know, that the uh, that square object on uh, series, um, obviously they haven't changed um, their approach very much. They're still very much operating within the box and. Um, I think that's probably never going to change, but we'll make we'll make you know we'll make the world more interesting. Hmm. Well, there's several things coming up on the horizon that I think are going to make the world really a lot more interesting. Not the least of which is uh, this administration has now asked for three billion dollars extra for the next fiscal year to keep uh, Artemis on track. And, you know, they really apparently want to land on the moon by, you know, the second term of the administration, 2024. And and the test will be if, you know, the Democrats go along and they get their money relatively unscathed. 
You know, I, I don't I, I don't want to talk about politics, but uh, I just want to say this, that I think I think uh, Elon Musk and, you know, they, they were talking about privatizing space for years, years and years. And finally, Musk figured it out. And SpaceX is just I think it's a remarkable company. They are so far ahead of, of anything NASA could possibly come up with. Um, now, you know, Na- NASA, you know, in the aerospace the military, military industrial complex. There's no incentive them, for them to, to to come up with anything truly innovative. But SpaceX has come up with some really innovative stuff. I mean, to save money, to have boosters that come back and land, and ha- and that's the key enabling technology to allow them to land on the moon, on Mars, and all this other stuff. There, that's see where what's I so put weird. My, I put my money on SpaceX. Well. I mean, remember the bet many years ago when I brought this up on coast and George said, oh, it'll never work. I, I couldn't believe that he was looking at what Musk was trying to do and he was like two or three landings away from autonomous return of the first stage and now they're working on the second stage. The thing that really, when I saw what Musk was up to, my question was, why didn't we have this like 50 years earlier? Well, we, we, well, the funny thing is that we did in the in the 1950s sci-fi movies, you know, all the V2 rockets, they, you know, reverse the film and, you know, they oh, land yeah, on yeah. their tails. But it's I mean, like, that's, right? it basically, the, we could have, with state-of-the-art computers back in the 50s, they could have programmed in a return parabola to reach a drone ship or land it back on land, that kind of thing which if you factor into the equation, we would have had democratic access to space decades earlier. And given that I've seen so much conspiracy around these subjects, frankly, I think, Mark, that we were not supposed to democratize space until now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. So you're not violently opposed to the idea that history is being tinkered with? Um, I think um, my philosophy of life is that we have about 25% control over things. And about 75% is not up to us. You know, whether you want to call it karma or or alien control of, <laughs> of reality, I don't know. I mean, you know, pick your pick your um, uh, control mechanism. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, we don't have total control. Hmm. I mean, that's a belief. I can't, you know, I can't argue that like it, I can argue, you know, some of the points in, in Before Atlantis or the key ideas in fractal analysis or shape from shading. But, yeah, that's different. So, for the folks that are saying, well, obviously these guys know each other, but I wonder how they know each other. Back in the good old days, when Kintia was sculpting the face on Mars literally as an analog in clay with thousands of woman hours spent literally backbreaking over a easel with different light stores mimicking, you know, the sun angles that NASA used to photograph the uh, whatever was down there on the, those deserts. You were working on an algorithm 
that would do all this in the computer. For people who think it's still magic, how does this algorithm work and how could you get three-dimensional information out of a set of two-dimensional images? Yeah, well, by the way, I still have, I still have a, um, a plastic uh, casting, I think it's the correct term, of her plaster model. Uh, I still have it. Ah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be worth a lot of money one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you do it? Um, well, I mean, there's some really complicated ways of, of sort of formulating the math. And, and uh, at the time, we had an intern from MIT working uh, at Task. That was the company I was at. Uh, uh, in the 80s and um, he he developed a, an algorithm that used uh, uh, sort of it just kept sort of iterating it guessed, it guessed at a solution and then it adjusted it based on matching the guess against the image and it went through lots of iterations there's actually simpler ways of doing it um, in fact <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'll shamelessly promote uh, one of the things. One of the one of my many uh, hats is has been app development, and I actually have an app. You can buy it for the Mac, for the Macintosh, Mac OS 10, and um, it's a shape from shading app. Mm. And you can take an image, and you can generate a three-dimensional uh, surface, and then you can render it. You can light it in different ways. You can project it in in different ways, just like we did back in the eighties. You know, using you know mainframe computers, you can now do it. Do it. On well, your do you remember what I? As soon as I saw it on video, I said, "I know." And uh, Richard and I got together, and I said, "Let's do this." And I put it in the lower right-hand corner of the opening pages of the Monuments of Mars. Yeah, with the flip through thing. What's that? What's that called when you do that? Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Right. The old. Uh, the, I have like a an well. Old Mickey Mouse think, of, think of it as like 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 a living storyboard. Right. Right. Except right. It's, it's a real thing. It's like right. the old the old stereo stereopticon. You know, back yes. before the, the the days of film when they were looking at rotating discs and slots and I mean amazing effort that the early photographers went to to try to get three-dimensional images motion picture images of the world yeah you know I just I just learned I, I this is jumping ahead maybe hopefully we'll talk about this later on but one of the uh, one of the uh, early uh, investigators in in uh, in the Yucatan and the you know investigating the Mayan culture uh, Augustus uh, La Plagione, I pardon my French French pronunciation, but he was a uh, ethnologist that um, he had a tremendously uh, well-respected uh, reputation. And you know, people say scientists say that he he completely lost it by speculating on on the origin of the Mayan civilization. But apparently, uh, at the Getty Museum in L.A., and I definitely need to visit it next time I make a trip out there. Apparently, his his original collection of stereo photography, when he first visited these ruins back, like 
in the late 1800s, like glass plate stereo oh my, images. My. And you know that black, you know, the oldest, like the black and white photos and plates have the best, you know, best resolution, highest quality. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, anyway, just sort of an aside, but, uh, yeah, the old technology uh, can, can be, can be effective. Very. Provided you're open to looking at it. There's been a huge fight about the Harvard, you know, observatory's 100-year stash of imagery of the sky. And it's this incredible archive extending back over 120-some years, except when it came to this, you know, bizarre thing called Tabby Star. And then suddenly everybody said, oh, we can't trust the Harvard plates. And it was, it was you know, canon for decades. Yeah, actually, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with that. So, what, 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 what was the up, upshot of that? What, uh, what happened? Well, the Tabby Star is this peculiar star. <clears throat> excuse me, in the constellation of Lyra, and it has been dimming, according to the Harvard plates, for over a hundred years. And when the NASA folks, you know, like a couple, you know, maybe 15 years ago, sent up the the Kepler Observatory to look at that part of the sky and do photometry on something like 150,000 stars, they mm -hmm. found one, which has a long name, whose number I totally forget at the moment, but the nickname for it was Tabby Star, and it had these incredible dramatic dips to where it would be normal and then it would dip by 22% over a period of several days. And then huh. it would recover. And then as more and more people from the ground started looking, you know, the, there was an astronomy team from University of Louisiana that claimed that they had found dimming on the order of 195 to 20% going back over 100 years based on the you know, acquisition of the data at Harvard and other mm -hmm. institutional uh, databases. And, and they wanted to su suppress that? or Well, it's just that it, there's a lot of argument as to whether you can believe of photographic plates. and you know, mm. it's, it's only when you bring in SETI and the idea. I mean, there's all kinds of sub- flickerings, there's codings, there's mathematical linkages to the same kind of constants that we found at Sidonia. Surprise, mm -hmm. surprise. Mm. So mm -hmm. it's all it's all ultimately going to come out, <clears throat> if not uh, before, you know, in 2024, when Artemis begins to really do the things in lunar orbit again. Yeah, well, maybe it'll find the monolith then. <laughs> So, okay, when we last left our hero, he was busily processing at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, illicit images of the plains of Sidonia and finding that this bizarre thing had more and more prerequisites of a big, big, big statue. That's kind of basically it? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, when I looked at it, I, I, I didn't expect that, um, with the, sh well, in particular, the shape and shading when, uh, you know, I was, I had this model that I could 
render it in other ways. And I had no idea that I'd be able to render different, you know, visually, you know, reasonable uh, renditions of a face from different angles. That was that was kind of the that was the thing that, um, you know, it was like, whoa. And um, at the time, well, you were you were in California, I think Brian O'Leary had moved to Massachusetts. We actually he was living with his partner at the time or a girlfriend. And uh, so we'd get together quite a bit. He he was a task and he you know, I showed him the stuff and he thought, yeah, we should definitely write write up a couple of papers. So he wrote one uh, for the journal of the British Interplanetary Society, and I wrote one for Applied Optics. Of course, I tried, you know, I, 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 uh, I was, uh, I, you know, I was a little bold, and I thought, well, let me see if I, if I could um, get, if I could submit it to Icarus. That was the, uh, you know, that was the big planetary journal at the time. It may still be, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, <laughs> they, they weren't too impressed. <laughs> Uh, oh, we were all so naive back then. I know, I know. I thought it was. I thought it was like, wow, what an amazing discovery, you know. And uh, they were like, um, no. <laughs> so, and I tried. I tried again. I, I think um, my my fractal paper. I think we tried submitting that to Nature, and I got that back just a few days later. With you know, and it was. Their their rejection was a little bit more, you know, more polite, more measured. Whereas you know, Icarus Icarus was like it was kind of like like bloody hell, you know. Um, nature was a little bit more polite about it. Okay, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Carlotto. We go way back to the independent Mars investigation team and shape from shading algorithms. And the endless discussion was the face on Mars, an extraordinarily ancient echo of a previous human or humanoid civilization. Or was it all, in the immortal words of NASA, just a trick of light and shadow? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I want to uh, talk a bit about hope for some people tonight that we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers and hope for a better world that we can actually help them achieve. I'm talking, of course, about the people in the Bahamas. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, that's our homepage, and click on that banner which says at the top, Save Lives, Pure Water for the Bahamas. We have been introduced to a technology it's a filtering technology in uh, uh, a certain kind of non-allergenic plastic form. Um, you buy one of these bottles with a filter. It will replace something like 500 ordinary bottles of, of uh, mineral water, whatever, the kind that they've been shipping to these disaster sites, you know, on pallets and letting sit outside in the sun. And obviously they're not in non-allergenic pl- plastic, so the water is ruined. and thousands of tons of water that was supposed to reach the victims of Hurricane Marie sat there and and rotted in the sun. The same thing's been happening in the Bahamas. If tonight you want to do something to inject meaningful change 
into a whole group of people's lives, 60 to 100,000 people on those two northern Bahama Islands tonight. Just go to that site, click on that banner, and then scroll down below the Yes, I Want to Help button, and there's a video that was shot right after the um, uh, Dorian disaster. I saw a video a couple days ago. Nothing has changed. It is like living in an apocalypse. It is like living in you know, the land of the Lord of the Flies. It's living in conditions that you tonight, listening to my voice, cannot imagine you sustaining 24 hours, 36 hours, two months, five months, you know, a year, five years. It's, it's impossible. They've, they've been trying to bring water in from desalinization. I think the U.S. Navy has brought a couple of ships and anchored them you know, in the northern ports there, and they desalinize seawater to provide water for the inhabitants on the islands, but it's costing $7 per gallon to produce one gallon of fresh water from the surrounding seawater. This technology, which we are privy to, which you can buy by clicking on that button, as many of these bottles of water, life-saving water, and send to the Bahamas as you can afford tonight, and yes, it's tax deductible because it's a nonprofit association that we're in league with, which is doing this. There is no quicker, more effective way in this season to transform someone's life than to give them the gift of life, which is pure 99.99% pure water. And the bottle and the system is recyclable and all you do is change the filter after the equivalent of about 500 ordinary plastic water bottles and the bottles that they're in the actual water bottles that you're sending they will last essentially forever and they will reach how many people a thousand five thousand ten thousand so do whatever you can open your heart and make a difference in someone's life tonight back everyone to the other side of midnight for this Saturday February 22nd 2020 how oh, where does time fly so Mark um, let's kind of transition quickly back in time because when we left off you were looking with contemporaneous state-of-the-art algorithms at turning two-dimensional imagery from NASA and other agencies into three-dimensional projections of the data. How did you wind up across time and space and gosh knows how many years focusing your attention on potential ancient terrestrial high-tech civilizations? Uh, so this is, this is the big jump. Um, I kind of so. noticed, yes. Yeah, so uh, do you want to go right to that, or can I take take you to it slowly? No, no, by all means, whatever wandering <laughs> path you want to wander down. Um, 
Yeah, you know, after um, after about I don't know, fifteen years or so, I was I was kind of burning out on um, on the Mars investigation, and I would say burning out on on sort of ET stuff in general. Um, I was going through some some changes in my personal life, and uh, you know, I moved and I found myself in a new place. And um, I started getting involved in, in something completely different, um, which was local archaeology and um, local history. And I was getting out and hiking and measuring things and, um, you know, going to the local library and researching. And um, for, for 10 years, I, I did that. I, you know, I live uh, in the North Shore, uh, north of Boston. And... Um, I spent a lot of time in the woods hiking and exploring and, you know, getting out and, and, you know, touching stuff and just, you know, kind of getting in touch with sort of the real, the essence of, of, uh, of archaeology and history. Um, and, um, I mean, what I, what I was kind of, it was totally serendipitous. I moved to a place and I discovered that there was a abandoned colonial settlement in my backyard i mean this is i'm talking about thousands of acres um in the middle of of where i live in uh on cape ann in, in uh, massachusetts and um so i did a lot of exploring i did a lot of I, I i basically got lost in the woods when i moved here and so i decided i would map the old settlement the the trails the old roads the stone walls the cellar holes and um you know it kind of became an obsession with me to, to try to figure it all out, you know, being an engineer and, uh, you know, so I wouldn't get lost again. And, uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote three books. It was funny. One of the books, uh, you know, it's, it's called the Dogtown guide and I'll ask people. Uh, so now, now that you have this book, you know, do you get lost anymore in Dogtown? Cause everyone gets lost in Dogtown and about half the people say, yeah, I still get lost in Dogtown. So, um, I say, well, you know, the, the guide is doing its job. It's, you know, because if it were perfect, you know, it would be boring. Part of the experience up here where I live is getting lost and sort of like a, like an, like a rite of passage. Um, so I was doing that for, for a lot of years. And, um, and uh, I, a, a friend of mine, an anthropologist, got me interested in a native site, a Native American site, ceremonial site that she had some notes to the effect that from a archaeologist back 50 years ago that he thought there might have been some stones aligned to solstices and so forth. So I spent a few years doing archaeoastronomy and uh, discovered, you know, that these alignments do in fact exist and based on, you know, changes in obliquity, you know, how that works, things don't line up exactly now uh, as when they were first Put in place because of shifts in the tilt of the Earth's axis, but it turned out that you know back about three to four thousand years ago, these things did line up, which was around the time you know they thought that Native people started coming to Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, you know, this was the gradual progression of of migrations and so forth after the last ice age. It's, so, so what's happening is there's, there's this trajectory now that now 
I'm kind of getting back into sort of getting into history and archaeology. So now I'm getting interested in things in the past, you know, on Earth, not things in the future on Mars. So sort of, in a sense, going in the opposite direction. But I mean, in many ways, it's the same direction. And I was uh, going to say, it's kind of like a loop. It's kind of like a loop. But, you know, the funny thing is that um, every every change in my life is, you know, it's, it's I mean, that's the way life is. It just changes seemingly, unex, you know, suddenly, unexpectedly, for no clear reason at the time. But then, in retrospect, it all makes perfect sense. Um, a few years ago, we were planning a trip to Mexico, and um, I was looking at sites uh ancient sites on google earth that i you know thought i'd want to visit and um you know noticing hey these sites aren't aligned to the cardinal directions north south east and west in fact one of the sites i looked at was teotihuacan north of mexico city know mm, it well and and okay and so you know now we'll go back to mars one of the uh, your your hypothesis was that the um, city and face were aligned to the summer solstice sunrise on Mars, and um, were, you know, and and so the alignment was. Correct me if I'm wrong. Something from like the city square through a number of points of reference, all the way out to the face and beyond. Mm-hmm. You got and it. Based on yeah, and based on that alignment and changes in the obliquity of Mars, you estimated that that alignment was last satisfied precisely about half a million years ago, right? Mm, Give or take, yes. Give or take. So then, you remember Tom Van Flandern passed away some some years ago? Another tragedy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tom Tom, uh, made an interesting observation that um, before, uh, well, it, it, it turns out that you know Mars has undergone at least one significant pole shift called true polar wander, where the locate where the position of the North Pole changes because the whole planet, in the case of Mars, it rotated because of the Tharsis formation. Right, there was so much uh, mass spewing up, it created an imbalance, right, and it caused the planet to rotate. That's the theory. Yes, that's the theory. So Tom's observation was prior to this rotation, Cydonia would have been close to the equator and the city and face would have been aligned pretty close to the cardinal directions. So, you know, I remembered that. And then, you know, with Teotihuacan, I remember reading uh, a book by Rand Flem Aff, uh, the Atlantis blueprint, I think, mm-hmm. where he uh, proposes that Atlantis uh, is now at the South Pole, that it was shifted to the South Pole as a result of a pole shift, you know, twelve to 18,000 years ago, something like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking at this, you know, back, back to Google Earth, I'm looking at these sites in Mexico, and I'm thinking about visiting on this vacation, it's like, huh, I wonder if these sites, and I remember Teotihuacan, remember Flemath said something like in his book, you know, if the, according to Hapgood's theory, if the pole were in Hudson Bay, 
you know, Teotihuacan would be close to 45 degrees north latitude and uh, almost oriented to the cardinal directions. Um, but rather than getting, and, and a lot of people get, up, get hung up on the latitude of these sites, like there's this thing now that all these sites are, are along near the equator, or, or a, a great circle near the equator around the Earth. Um, and we, maybe we'll talk about that later, which is interesting. But what I found more interesting was the idea that, hmm, Teotihuacan was close to being cardinally aligned. What if Hapgood was a little off in his estimation of the North Pole? Because you know, he was estimating these, these positions based on climate data. So, you know, you can only get so accurate with that. Let's, let me just try a different North Pole position, move, move it around and see if I could get uh, Teotihuacan to be exactly... Do we want oriented. to send people to <clears throat> radio with pictures yet? Um, yeah, you know, we could, we could look at, um, it might be jumping ahead a little bit, but we could look at okay, number well, five, the new just, interpretation of Teotihuacan. Okay. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Uh, it was so amazingly a- impressive when Robin... <clears throat> and I were there on good old NBC's dime. Oh yeah, when was that? Um, two thousand nine, I believe. Yeah. And so, I was measuring the the physics. I mean, these things are measurable, huge torsion field amplifiers. You know, wh- wh- when I when I was there, I I was blown away. I didn't expect it to be. Uh, as you know, I, I've been to Egypt, and uh, I was obviously blown away by Giza. Um, Teotihuacan is 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 a very close second. Uh, the scale of the site is just uh, enormous, and um, and and so the alignment again was like this site is purposefully al- aligned in a certain direction. Now, archaeologists will say. It's lined up this way because they, the Teotihuacanos wanted to orient it so that it's sort of the, the, the pyramids sort of match the topography, the shape of the topography, or that they were aligned to the, um, you know, to this star or that star, or, you know, some, you know, a lot of these explanations uh, for that I came across for not just Teotihuacan but for other sites are really, really weak. Um, you know, for such an extraordinary site, you would expect a very simple, compelling explanation. Like, you know, like the, the Giza pyramids are aligned with incredible precision, north, south, east, and west. It, you, you would expect nothing less for such a, a monumental uh, uh, structure and complex. But for te- for the ex- explanation for Mexican uh, and Mesoamerican pyramids, the explanations are, are terrible. I think. Uh, anyway, so so you know Hapgood's explanation, his hypothesis, um, made sense of this, and so the light bulb went off, and I thought, I wonder if if all these other ancient sites that I had seen, I'd noticed, could also be explained by different North Pole positions. And so I started measuring and measuring, and I did hundreds, 
thousands of measurements by hand, dragging the the ruler tool in Google Earth from a site to Gosh, different this north sounds, positions. This sounds so vaguely familiar. I'll yeah, see. I know. I know, it's the sort of thing um, we would have done. Oh, an analog big board and protractors and, and orthographically rectified images glued together on a... Subs Gosh, this sounds vaguely familiar. Isn't it? But that's, that's, that's how it starts, right? Yes. Uh. So, I mean, so now I have programs and apps that, that do it automatically. And, you know, I've looked at, at hundreds, thousands of sites that I've measured. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's how it started. And I gradually developed the hypothesis uh, over, well... Uh, over oh, it was actually over a couple of days, but I, you know, I was like working like a, like a madman because it was like holy, you know, holy crap! This is this is really I, you know, and I and I never heard of anyone else, you know, other than it, it's like Flemath was onto this, but they they but he but he didn't pursue it, and then you know there was a sequel to, uh, I think the first book was. Um, uh, he did another book with some with uh, Colin Wilson, some co-author, and and they didn't pursue this angle at all, which was I thought was like, hmm, this is so, this is such an such a simple hypothesis to explain the misalignments of ancient sites, and 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 I have a paper coming out this month in the Journal of Scientific Exploration where I look at uh, sites across the world, and I find that only about half of them can be explained in terms of conventional alignments. Um, and then I have a sequel paper coming out this summer that actually introduces the pole shift hypothesis to explain these sites. Um, and so, so, so I did the book first because I didn't think anyone had ever published a paper on this. But then, you know, over time, uh, you know, the uh, JSC is, is very reasonable and you know, they were the review process was pretty rigorous, but uh, I put some some papers together J-S-C? with their help. JSC Journal of Scientific Exploration. Oh, this is the the Stanford group. Okay, Stanford group. That's right. Yep. Um, you know, they're not afraid to. You know, they they published uh, my STS forty eight paper, the stuff that we worked on together back in the nineties. Mm. They published. Um, um, I think uh, Crater's. Pa- I think they published one or two papers by Crater on the mounds and the uh, geometry in Cydonia. Oh, I keep getting pinged from ResearchGate. <laughs> yeah, yep. There are probably those papers online on ResearchGate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should you should put some stuff on there. It's uh it's a pretty good site. It gets a lot of traffic and they cross reference stuff and it's it's pretty good. Um. But anyway, so um, we were fast forwarding, and I think I I made the fast forward from Mars to to uh, well, I'm almost there. So you know, so I'm looking at all these sites, and I'm looking at alignments, which is you know, recall that's what we were doing. That's what you were doing in particular back in the Mars days. That just sounds so eerily right. familiar. Early familiar. But the thing I was always uncomfortable with back then was arguing from the point of view of alignment, saying these things are aligned in a certain way, therefore they must be artificial. I was 
I wanted to find something more intrinsically artificial about an object, like its fractal structure or that, it, you know, I was looking for something else. That was just sort of my hang up at the time. Nevertheless. Well, it wasn't now, a hang up. It was a totally legitimate, separate line of inquiry, you know. It was my, it was, but it was, you know, I, I would say it was, um, yeah, let's, okay, we'll leave it at that. So, what what's different now is that I'm talking about alignments of things that that are they're they're not are they're not natural. They're true. They're artificial. They're archaeological sites on Earth, and no one has a good, compelling let's say compelling explanation for their alignment. So that's now we're I'm into alignments for you know in a different way. And the model here is actually quite simple. It's, it says, okay, the North Pole is now where it is uh, 12 to 18,000 years ago. It was in Hudson Bay. Before that, it was in, in Greenland, uh, Norway, Norwegian Sea, Bering Sea. Stuff is talked about in the book. And with these five locations, I've been able to uh, explain, you know, at this point, we're between 100 and 200 sites across the world that don't have other uh, conventional explanations. For example, um, Machu Picchu, the oldest structures, the most enigmatic structures there, the um, the Temple of the Three Windows is is a sun temple, but it doesn't point towards the sun. How can that be? Mm-hmm. Well, relative to a hypothesized pole in the Bering Sea, which is close to one of Hapgood's original pole locations, it does line up, as do uh, a half a dozen other sites in Peru's Sacred Valley. They all line up, line up in the same direction. That same location, though, um, works in terms of alignments of sites on the other side of the world. So, you know, you, you basically, if you can triangulate sites at different meridians coming at the pole from dif- different directions, that gives you a really good sense that the pole is really located there. If all the sites are in one place pointing in one direction, it's like, yeah, the pole could be there, but it could be anywhere along you know, a certain direction. But by getting sites all over the world and triangulating, you can really refine the, um, the estimate. And in fact, there's a, one, of, one of the links there is to, is to a paper that I presented uh, last year at a conference where I... Um, where I actually go through that. Um, Would and, this uh, be a good time to refer people to maybe number four? Yeah, I'm kind of um, jumping all over the place here. Let's see. Um, number four. Um. Yeah, so that's that that's part of it. That's the um, so there's two elements to his to Hapgood's pole shift hypothesis. There's the there's the where and the when. The where is the is the locations of the North Pole, and the when is when those locations existed. And four is uh, it talks about uh, revisiting the when by basically tying it to more recent. Um, estimates of when the different periods of glaciation were. You know, Hapgood's hypothesis is that 
the ice ages were caused by the movement of the pole. And, um, and so the ice age in North America uh, was, was due to the fact that the pole was in Hudson Bay, which is quite a distance further south than it currently is. And as a result, you know, much of northern North America was under an ice sheet, including where I live right now. Um, so that's, that's the when part. So that would be in four. Um, and, uh, yeah, we could, we could click on that. I could, maybe I should slow down a little bit. Um, we have time. Yeah, I got, I got, I should, uh, conserve my energy. We got two more hours. (laughs) (laughs) I'm usually in, I'm usually in REM sleep at this point. Don't even think about it. Okay. So, this is an idea. Why don't Why don't you talk a bit about who Hapgood was, and the remarkable paradigm shattering idea he was proposing in the nineteen fifties? Yeah. So you know when, um, so when the Spanish um, came to the New World, they 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 pretty much destroyed almost all the codices and. Anything that would really give us insight into the deep knowledge of the of the Mayans of the Mesoamerican people was was destroyed. Um, but what what happened gradually over time is that um, you know people studying languages, iconography, so forth, uh, visited um, and you know did research in in uh, uh, in in the Yucatan in Mexico and, um, you know, and, and, and basically began to discover, uh, you know, bits and pieces and they, you know, pieced together this myth that the, uh, Aztecs had called the, uh, legend of the five sons that there were basically different, uh, periods, ages, uh, sort of like we have in the West, you know, with the golden age, the silver age, the bronze age and so forth that the Greeks talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, the great platonic uh, year, yeah, and 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 that which is similar to the to the to the yugas, right? The cycle, yep, in the um, Eastern uh, religious traditions. Mm-hmm. So similar thing in in um, in uh, Mesoamerica, and these great ages were were brought to an end by cataclysms, sort of like you know Plato talks about. In um, in Timaeus and, and, and Critias, his dialogues that that talk about Atlantis. Um, so anyway, so um, this idea had surfaced late 1800s, about roughly around that time. That you know, about this idea of cataclysms and these ages. Yeah, we're coming um, up to the top of the hour here, so okay, let's leave so, them on a cliffhanger. So that's where Hapgood enters the picture. Okay. Not a bad cliffhanger. All right. We'll find out he used to work, among other things, for the CIA. Isn't that intriguing? You'll have to tell me about that. Actually, that's exactly what I intend to do. My (laughs) guest this morning is Dr. Mark Carlotto. Mark and I go way back. He was part of our original investigation of the idea on a northern plain called Sidonia on Mars. There was a statue a mile long looking up into the night 
across the solar system. And thereby began a tale which is still unfolding. And we'll get back to it in a minute. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio, with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale, and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.